And uh, we are here now in the prophesied kingdom. And uh, as we've read through this, you know, we've probably uh, come to some stories in the Bible that are pretty familiar to us. Uh, now, it's been exciting to talk to new believers who are just encountering some of this for the first time and beginning to see all the, the connections in Scripture that tie it all together. But, but for others of us, this is an unknown territory. Right, we know something about Noah and, and Moses and David and, and, and probably we know about how they, they play a role in God's unfolding plan of redemption that is fulfilled in Christ. But one of the reasons why we're doing this study for this summer is because there are things that we think that we know that we need to be reminded about. Right, how many of you are forgetful people in here? How many of you forgot to raise your hand? You know, I know the, the film Finding Dory recently came out, and I haven't seen it yet, but uh, Finding Dory, it's the, the sequel to Finding Nemo, and it gives the backstory of Dory, who, who's a fish that suffers from short-term memory loss, or at least she thinks she does. She can't quite remember. Uh, but look, this has become a problem for all of us. We all have a little bit of Dory on the inside of us. You know, I, I typically would pride myself in my ability to retain information, but, but every now and then my, my poor wife will, will tell me about something that's happening or mention something that we're doing this weekend, and, and I'll act confused and surprised, like I'm hearing about that for the first time, and she'll say, we had a conversation about this. I told you that's happening on Saturday. Uh, the problem is when that conversation took place, I probably had my face in a book or buried in a device. Uh, but we are a distracted people. And that affects how we interact with the truth of God. Now this isn't new, thankfully. Back in the 1500s, Martin Luther said, every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget the noise of the world and the activities of life and the temptations we confront and the pressures that we face, these things knock some necessary information out of our heads. We forget who we are and the story that we're a part of. In Andrew Peterson's fantasy novel, The Warden and the Wolf King, there are these characters that are called the Cloven. And, and they're people who have become disfigured and monster-like because they were deceived into thinking that they could improve themselves if they gave their allegiance to the enemy who's called Nag the Nameless in the book. And now they've become disoriented and forgotten who they are. They, they don't remember their life before this. And like Nag, they've become nameless. But sometimes they can be helped to remember, and, and one of the main characters is, is speaking with the cloven, and, and he asks, so once someone remembers their true name, they're cured, Janner asked. I wish it were so. We all forget from time to time, and so we need each other to tell us our stories. Sometimes a story is the only way back from the darkness. Well, God calls his people back from the darkness. He reminds them of their story. And a primary way that he does that in scripture is through the prophets. Through the prophets, God inserts his voice into history. The author speaks into the story. He says, make no mistake. Here's who you are. Here's where you're heading. Here's what you need to know. Wayne Grudem writes, speaking through the prophets, God guided kings and people by telling them how to act in specific situations, warned people when they disobeyed him, predicted events that he would bring about, interpreted events when they came about, and demonstrated that he alone was both ruler of history and a God who personally relates to his people. Now, notice the variety that's listed there. We, we, we typically think of prophets as those who you know, predict the future. 
And that is a big part of prophetic ministry. And so next week, we'll, we'll look at how God used the prophets to proclaim a future hope to his people, a hope that, that ultimately would find its fulfillment in the coming of Christ. But a central part of what the prophets did was to call the people to return to the covenant that made a claim on them. They issued prophetic reminders about their identity as God's people. Von Roberts writes in, in the book that we're going through, God's Big Picture, he says, the role of the prophets who succeeded Moses was to enforce the covenant, urging the people to obey it and reminding them of the blessings that followed obedience and the curses that followed disobedience. We must not think of the prophets as only predicting what God will do through Christ in the future. They first spoke in their own day. They were foretellers, not just foretellers. And their main message was one of judgment. And we'll look at all those elements today. But we see prophets beginning to show up in that period of the partial kingdom that we discussed last week, and they begin to increase in frequency. God begins to turn up the volume of prophecy the more that Israel departs from following God's law. And, and one of the ways that, that you could divide the prophets is between the former prophets and the latter or writing prophets. I think I have a graphic in here for that. I don't know if I've already lost it. Tyler, if you want to pull that one up there. Uh, but it, the, you have... And the former prophets, uh, guys like Samuel and Nathan, and they're listed in the historical books of First and Second Samuel. And then there's Elijah and Elisha that are mentioned in First and Second Kings. And so they're not writing necessarily their own prophetic books, but we find out about them in the historical narratives. But then in the eighth century BC onward, the prophets begin to write down their oracles. And so there's the, that chart that just plays out a little bit for you of how that history goes with the different prophets and their roles and, and, and where they're, they're prophesying. But this morning, we're gonna zoom in and just do a case study on the prophet Jeremiah. And, and this will just give us an illustration of how God used prophets to call the people to return to his word. So please open to the book of Jeremiah, chapter one. And through his ministry, we'll consider the prophetic call, the prophetic word, and the prophetic plea. Well, in his biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, Ian Murray tells of his ministry during the days of the Second World War, and, and this was an era of transition and crisis. The British Empire had effectively come to an end after controlling about a quarter of the globe, and in 1944, London was under siege as Germany began to aerial bomb the city causing over uh, about 10,000 casualties in a week. And one Sunday morning, Lloyd-Jones was in the middle of his pastoral prayer in the service and sirens began screaming. And the congregation could hear as a plane closed in and a bomb fell. And there was a huge explosion and the, the chapel cracked and, and debris began to fall on the people. But they... They watched and they, they wanted to see how would their pastor react? Would he run? Would he panic? But after a moment, he resumed his prayer. And then he told the people that whoever wished to could go under the, the gallery for safety. And then he dusted off the podium and opened up his Bible and began to preach God's word. The people of God need the voice of God in the tumult of history. And Jeremiah's ministry was also characterized by an age of crisis. The, the book opens by giving us a sense of the times. And they were troubling times, right? Jeremiah chapter one, verse one. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word, the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, 
and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now, there's a lot of history that's assumed there that if we don't gather in from some other places in the Bible, we won't follow all that's, that's happening. But uh, back in Solomon's reign, which was uh, characterized by tremendous prosperity and, and blessing from God, and, and, and in Solomon, we, we get the, a picture of, of what does it look like when God's people are ruled by a good king? What's the blessing? that I mean, We've been tracing this storyline of how the Bible Bible is advancing forward to, to have us arrive at God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And we see this partial picture of that in, in the days of David and Solomon. But as you read Solomon's story, it was also characterized by religious compromise. He loved a lot of women and he loved their foreign gods as well. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. And so under Solomon's son Rehoboam, Rehoboam leads this oppressive regime uh, which ends up causing the, the 10 northern tribes to rebel and set up a rival kingdom under a man named Jeroboam. And, and this is called the period of the divided kingdom. And so for a few hundred years, God's people exist as two separate nations. And Again, there's another slide for that, and my clicker has abandoned me long ago. But it's just a, it's just a picture of judgment that we're going to be considering today. So technology is useful in, the, in that sense. But there's a graphic that will show you the, 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 the ten tribes and the two tribes in this period of the divided kingdom. Now, now since the temple was in the south in Judah, Jeroboam doesn't want Israel in the north traveling down there to worship. And so what he institutes is, is this new uh, kind of mingled in religion that, that, that takes Israelite worship and mixes in Canaanite practices and deities. And Israel never recovers from her love affair with idolatry. And things go from bad to worse under one evil king after another until God sends the Assyrians in 722 BC to devastate the nation. And at this time, Judah in the south becomes a vassal state under uh, Assyria and is warned not to follow Israel's example. But while Judah has the temple and they have a legitimate priesthood and they have the Davidic line, that, that doesn't stop them from falling into Baal worship and abandoning the Lord. And some efforts of reform are made by kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, who's just mentioned in, in the passage that we read, but, but these are short-lived and the nation continues to slide into unbelief and toward destruction. And in 627 BC, when Jeremiah receives his call, the Assyrian Empire that for so long had dominated the global scene was falling apart. Another empire named Babylon would pick up the pieces and they would claim Judah in the process. And it's in this setting that God raises up a prophet named Jeremiah. Look at verse four. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And here's something that we've seen recurring in the biblical storyline. Throughout scripture, God tells people who they are. And he's not reluctant to take over people's lives and declare that he's created them for a purpose. God is the author and he names us and here he tells Jeremiah that, that he's always known him. And, and, and that language in the Bible, it means more than just factual knowledge. It's the language of personal knowledge and commitment. The Lord tells Jeremiah, from all eternity, I've designated you as mine. I, I set a direction and boundaries in place in your life. I have plans for you to be useful for my purposes. That's true of Jeremiah and his calling, and, and that's true of you and me in ours. But notice what God calls him to in verse nine. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. The Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. 
See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And here is a ministry of a prophet, right? An agent of the Lord's will and word called to represent the voice of God speaking into current conditions in need of adjustment. Owen Stratton says, the prophet was set aside by the Lord to speak the will and announce the mind of God through declaration, exhortation, scorching rebuke, and entreaties to taste God's lavish mercy. The prophets interpreted the times through an unflinchingly theocentric perspective. Fools for God, they were seized by Yahweh and they spoke for him. And through these pages, their ministry continues. But here's the blessing of prophecy. By it, divine thoughts and intentions are disclosed. The ministry of the prophet is a ministry of the word. And so verse 11, and the word the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. And the almond tree was the, the first to blossom and to show the signs of fruitfulness just before spring was to come. It, it was showing an indication of what was to follow. And, and the Hebrew noun al almond has the same letters as the verb to watch. And so God is watching over his word. He's ensuring that it will take place. It will always prove true. It's as trustworthy as its source. Here's something for us to consider. What needs to be added to God's word in order to increase our confidence in it? And of course, the answer is nothing. As Hebrews 6 says, when, when God made a promise to Abraham since there was no one higher to swear by, he swore by himself. You know, we might throw around that phrase, I swear to God but God really does swear to God, right? What higher authority can he appeal to? He is self-authenticating. And you know, while I believe in, in using supporting evidence and, and argument when it, when it comes to showing the reliability of scripture, there is nothing that we need in addition to our Bibles in order for us to believe it. Nothing is more reasonable than to receive the word of the creator. And Jesus said, if you, if you don't believe Moses and the prophets, then you won't believe even if you see someone raised from the dead. And here's how the apostle Peter uh, makes this point in 2 Peter chapter one. You can turn there, or this is on the slide as well. He says this, 2 Peter one, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Right, don't you wish you could have been there? See the heavens opened up, hear the sound of the voice, see the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus as he comes out of the waters of baptism and you could have witnessed that. But notice what he says, verse 19. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That, that's what's given to us in our Bibles. A sure word. It's not just the product of human convention. It is a sovereign creation of the Holy Spirit. It is a certain guide. It's a blazing light in dark 
places. And we need this. We need words from God. As Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, before we, we start printing that verse on marketing materials for business strategy or quoting it in our life coaching YouTube videos, we should realize what this text is saying. It's not about personal inspiration, but prophetic revelation, right? Without the clarity of light that comes from God's word, we are wandering lost in the darkness. So don't neglect the Bible, Right, don't neglect the one source that you can be certain about in order to spend more time interacting with questionable information. Why do you, why do you read so many clickbait headlines and exaggerated social media posts or articles about the election cycle, right? They're just a bunch of liars anyway. Why attempt to doggy paddle in the ocean of opinions and ideas when a life preserver has been given to you? We need the Bible. Without the voice of God, we forget who we are. We perish. We need prophetic reminders, and we need the kind of message that Jeremiah brings us here. It's specifically a word of judgment. Look at verse 13. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. Verse 16, I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. And as you continue reading in, in Jeremiah, it's, it's clear that the north represents the approaching Babylon. And here it's, it's, it's pictured as a boiling over cauldron that's about to spill onto the land. What do you do with judgment? And this is some strong language. Disaster is coming. We have the ability to hear this, that God is displeased and he is going to take action against them and that it is going to hurt. Now in our final section, I'll, I'll seek to address the theological question of, of how they can be under judgment if they're God's people, but for now, we should just recognize clearly this is a word of judgment. And, and you can't read far in the prophets without encountering this kind of message, which is why some people never read this part of the Bible. Right? It, it doesn't always feel like a nice thought of the day to glance at while munching cereal for breakfast. In fact, sometimes reading the book of Jeremiah can feel like chewing gravel. But apparently the Lord knows that we need this. But even in Jeremiah's day, this, this was a resisted word. Look at verse 19 here. He says, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. And so Jeremiah was not favorably received. Jesus said that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and Jeremiah's hometown will end up plotting to kill him. Uh, unfortunately, everywhere else he went, he was without honor as well, and, and, and throughout his entire ministry, he apparently had only two converts, and one of them was his scribe, Baruch. I don't know, maybe he felt sorry for him or something. <laughs> Uh, this is not the picture of popularity that we might expect. Everyone else resisted this message of judgment. So Owen Strawn says, suffering visited many of the prophets, not in spite of God's word, but because of it. Listen to what he says. In a world corrupted by a lie, the devil speaks just three false sentences in Genesis 3, 
Truth-telling is neither easy nor easily accepted. In situations laden with temptations to worship false gods and when does idolatry not abound, the prophet dares to speak the truth, taking captive every convenient illusion. And the prophets were engaged in a war of words, a contest of interpretation. And an issue was this, whose voice gets to define reality? From the beginning of this storyline, we, we, we find out that God is a speaking God. He's the one who's, who's speaking the story into existence beneath all of reality, beneath all that we see that's visible, all that is invisible, all that is right and all that is wrong. There are underlying that. There is the storyteller's words. He declares certain things to be good and he expresses his intentions in the things that he has made. But soon, contrary words enter the story. There's an alternative interpretation of reality, and ironically, the first doctrine in the Bible to be denied is the doctrine of judgment. You will not surely die. It's not an accident that basically the only Bible verse that our culture knows is judge not. It's like they don't even know the whole sentence, let alone the context, right? Ever since Genesis 3, that has been the thin veil of safety that we hide behind, pretending that God doesn't notice when we disregard his law. And in Jeremiah's day, there, there were no shortage of pundits posting this opinion on Twitter. And so Jeremiah 5 verse 11, God says, For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets, he's talking about the false prophets here, will become wind. The word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. There have always been people presuming to be spokesmen for God, pronouncing his blessing and favor on us even when long ago we've turned away from him to be obsessed with other things. One of my favorite scenes from the book of Jeremiah is this confrontation in chapter 28 uh, between Jeremiah and a man named Hananiah. And you could describe Hananiah as a 7th century B.C. prosperity preacher. And there were, there were people that were thinking in Jeremiah's day that, you know, maybe they could escape judgment. Maybe they could escape God's discipline that was going to come through Nebuchadnezzar by plotting a revolt against him, right? Maybe you could outsmart God in that way. And so God has Jeremiah do this symbolic act and, and, and make a cattle yoke and, and put it on his shoulders and neck and walk around and, and say, no, God really is going to put you under the yoke of the king of Babylon and you're not going to escape. But this guy Hananiah shows up and, and he takes Jeremiah's yoke bars and he breaks them. And he says, thus says the Lord, I've broken the yoke of the king of Babylon and I will restore the fortunes of Judah, right? Success is coming. God isn't really going to judge. But Jeremiah replies, thus says the Lord, you have broken wooden bars, but you have made in their place bars of iron because you have caused the people to trust in a lie. But that doesn't prevent false prophets like Hananiah from gaining an audience. It's a best-selling message. Chapter five, verse 31, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? Why do we do this? Why do we give an open ear to false prophets? Well, people love a divine stamp of approval on their own delusions, right? Whatever it takes to silence the screaming alarm going off inside of us that we're not right with God. And so that's why we love fluffy preachers and reality TV stars 
and shows like Preachers of LA in which prosperity preachers become reality TV stars. Uh, that's why we are a culture of gurus and spiritual guides. That's why we'll read a dozen articles about health and nutrition and fitness trends before we read the book of Jeremiah. That's why we're more in tune with the remedies of essential oils than we are with the rescue of repentance. Now, many of these things aren't bad, but they can become convenient distractions. They grant us a facade of safety. In Mark Sayer's book, Facing Leviathan, he refers to this as a society of the spectacle. And this is a new kind of society that, that centered not on family and religion and convention, but sex, shopping, and entertainment. It's a highly visual culture in which citizens are consumers and spectators, and there are seemingly endless opportunities and thrills. But by it, we anesthetize ourselves with options. We, we don't have to think about things like our own mortality or the hard realities of life or the direction we're heading or our relationship with God because we have cooking shows and discount airfare and celebrity gossip, let alone the fantasy version of ourselves that we curate on social media. And so we, we might take a moment to share some sort of concern about today's social issue or, or the latest tragedy that has hit the news headlines, but we're quick, quickly interrupted from thinking about that by the advertisements for the latest in teeth whitening. And so like Israel, we have a false sense of security that distracts us from the major problem of our idolatry. And God loves to expose this. God loves to show how thin a barrier our comfortable lifestyles provide between us and danger. And so in the prophets, he uses phrases like, I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make you a spectacle. And commenting on this, Mark Sayer says, a society of the spectacle will be made into a shameful spectacle. God will expose her illusions and distractions, allowing the world to see her sin. To do so, he needs a prophet, a leader to communicate his word of judgment. In times of great untruth, God will call leaders to be his heralds of truth. And listen, truth-telling is an act of love. It really is. False declarations of peace are cruel. It's like a, a doctor telling you everything's okay while he stares at a chart with fatal results. This is God's point in chapter six, verse 14. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. It is loving to alert them to the danger. Now, Jeremiah didn't always like being the bearer of bad news. He didn't particularly enjoy having no friends and no life. But something in him made it so that he couldn't do otherwise. And so he says in chapter 20, verse 8, For whenever I speak, I, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. It seems like those are the only words that I, I'm ever able to say. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. And if I say, I'll not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, burning fire shut up in my bones. Is this in you? Do you find that you just can't help but represent God's interests in this world? Right, Jeremiah did have a unique office and calling, but we should all find God's word to be just as inescapable, committing to the voice and thoughts of God no matter the cost, because it's worth it. And so he says in chapter 15, know that for your sake I bear reproach, but your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. And God's people say, amen. 
Now the message of judgment is not an end in itself. It's designed to press on an area of infection that has been ignored so that we would turn to him for the remedy. So turn to chapter two and we'll spend the rest of our time on the prophetic plea. In this chapter, God builds a case against his people. He enters legal proceedings with them and and, and he, he delivers a covenant lawsuit. And so he rehearses their history and he shows how far they've departed from it. So first he calls them to remember their story. Look at verse one. The word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. The prophets, they, they provide commentary on and reminders about the law. And here the covenant at Sinai, it's, it's pictured as a wedding day. And in Israel at the beginning of her story, she was, she was like a young bride who was willing to follow the man who rescued her wherever he led because she was convinced of his protection. And I officiated a, a wedding ceremony last night and and, you know the bride and and groom they exchange vows and they pledge their faithfulness to one another in whatever circumstance that they will face and at Sinai God pledged to be uh, the Lord pledged to be Israel's God and they promised their loyalty to him but it was not because Israel was particularly attractive or impressive that God chose them no it was just because He determined to set his affection on them to make them his. And so at the center of their identity as God's people was grace. But this was a grace that made a claim on them. In in the same way that a marriage relationship is appropriately exclusive on Israel's wedding day, they promised to have no other gods besides Yahweh. But despite the Lord's undeserved favor, it didn't take long before Israel went after other lovers. She determined Yahweh wasn't enough. And in her obliviousness, it's like she didn't even realize that adultery would be a problem. And so Jeremiah recounts how Israel slid away from her covenant vows. In verse four, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, right? Israel is like, it's like a woman who was purchased out of slavery and loved and married by her redeemer, but who quickly runs after new adventures and thrills without even stopping to ask, hey, where's that man who gave me back my life? Verse eight, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there's ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. All right, this is shocking. It's, it's incomprehensible. At the same time, this, this is also insightful. Because how does a nation that witnessed the parting of the Red Sea and ate miracle bread in the wilderness and saw the glory fill the tabernacle and watched in astonishment as as an army of Philistines fled in terror after a giant was just killed by a small boy with one stone. How do they trade everything in in order to bow down to some fertility God named Baal? 
Apparently, compromise comes more easily than we think. But this is this thought from Graham Goldsworth is helpful for us. He says, the reversal of Israel's fortunes after Solomon's reign is so obvious that one wonders why the people don't see their condition and do something about it. There are two obvious reasons why things are allowed to get worse. The first is that the sinful nature of the human heart resists the call to continual reformation. The second is that the slide from being a top nation under David to destruction and exile in Babylon actually takes about 400 years. The Israelites are no different from people today who tend to live for the moment with little thought for the past or the long-term future. Apparently, you can live moment by moment, need by need, going from one event on your schedule to the next, captivated by the latest thing that has your interest and not notice that you are drifting away. For Israel, the convenience and the pleasure and the apparent success and military favor enjoyed by followers of Baal eventually grab their hearts. For us, our idols may not be made of wood and stone, but they can be just as controlling. And what is an idol? An idol is whatever has your affections, what captures your thought life, what, what causes you to spend your resources. And idols always seem promising at first, but then they begin to issue demands. They become slave drivers. And so, you can watch your life, for instance, become unproductive as you return again and again to the same bad habits and something in you wants to change. The people around you, frankly, don't understand why you can't hold a job consistently, but each day you wake up and the idol of laziness demands service or you're unable to be gracious toward your spouse to acknowledge that he or she might actually be on to something in their viewpoint that maybe right now they might be a source of the wisdom of God for you, but you've been hurt by them and the idol of pride demands that you nitpick and become cold and frustrated toward them and like an obedient servant, you bow down. Idols call for worship. And like Israel says in verse 25, we say, I can't help it. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. But in the prophets, God exposes idolatry for what it is. He says in verse eight that they went after things that do not profit. All right, and here's another play on words. And, and yes, Miss Jean, there are puns in the Bible, so you'll, you'll appreciate this. Uh, but the word Baal, it, it sounds like the Hebrew word for prophet, right? P-R-O-F-I-T. And so what looks profitable, what looks like it's gonna deliver some advantage in my life is demonstrated to be a counterfeit. And then he uses a similar sounding word in verse five when he says they went after worthlessness and they became worthless. Now, notice the relationship there. When you go after what is worthless, you become worthless. And here's something that we see throughout the prophetic literature. You become like what you worship. You know, people say you are what you eat. I guess that's true. Uh, but it's also true that you are what you worship. In, in the book of Isaiah, God says that those who worship idols are just like them, blind, deaf, and mute. You, you, you getting any responses from those statues lately? Does it look like they're aware of anything that's happening in this world? The more and more you attach your affections to them, that's what you become like. He says you, you, you take a block of wood and with half of it you make a fire to cook your breakfast and with the other half you make into a statue and you bow down to it. And he says that, that block of wood's got more brains than you do. When you worship God, you become like God. Holy, righteous, loving, merciful, wise, and significant. When you worship other things, 
you become like them. Greg Beale says, what we revere, we will resemble, either for our ruin or for our restoration. And so if you worship the admiration of, of people, you will become just like people's shifting approval, empty and hollow. If you worship having stuff, you will become like your clothes and your furniture and gadgets, lifeless and trivial. If you worship partying and pleasure and constant highs, you will become just like those experiences, fizzling out before they really deliver. Idolatry shapes you. Don't think that you can bow down before the altar of money or success or sensuality and it won't change you. Like Israel, before you know it, you will become so disoriented that you can't even recognize the difference between the voice of God and the sales technique of somebody who just wants to keep you hooked. Like the cloven, we become disfigured. And we need God's story to bring us back from the darkness. And the amazing thing about this text is that in it we find an invitation to return to the source. You know, how should we understand the message of judgment that we find in the prophets? How should we understand things like verse nine where he says, I contend with you and with your children's children I will contend. It sounds like God is against his people. And in one sense, he is. You know, we often say that the people of God will never face the judgment and condemnation of God, although they experience his discipline. And thankfully, that's true. But we also have to keep in mind where we are here in the biblical story, right? right the, the prophesied kingdom, it, it addresses this condition of the partial kingdom. And so Israel is, is a national identity and it has a mixed character to it, right? As Paul says in Romans 9, not all who are of Israel are true Israelites. And so King Ahab and the white witch Queen Jezebel, they're, they're just as much Israelites as are Elijah and Elisha, but they're not part of the remnant who haven't bowed their knees to Baal. And Paul's point in Romans 9 is that God judging ethnic Israelites for their unbelief does nothing to undermine election by grace. And so the outward nation of Israel, it includes those who by faith are a part of the true people of God, as well as those who are just occupying space in the land but wanting nothing to do with God. And the thing is, they're both about to be swept away in the exile. And so much of the nation really is under the judgment and wrath of God. But for the remnant, judgment is an opportunity to receive discipline and to repent and to return in devotion to the Lord. For God's people, judgment is always a precursor to mercy. But to experience the benefit of this, we have to take an honest look at how we are drifted. Look at verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So unlike a, a running stream, a container in the ground needed to be constantly managed and, and refilled. And, and in the hill country of Palestine, earthquake tremors would, would sometimes cause these cisterns to crack and to leak. And so a traveler might see one from afar and, and think that it, it holds forth the promise of refreshment. But then when he arrives there, all that's left is just a, a little bit of water. Most of it has drained away. And there's just a little bit there that's probably filled with silt and mosquitoes. And the twin evil of Israel is that not only have they walked away from the fountain, but for some reason, inexplicably, they have actually preferred the sludge. They've become stupid enough to go to these cisterns again and again thinking, this time, it'll quench my thirst. Listen, what's dishonoring to God is not merely disobeying him. 
what is chiefly dishonoring to God is to find him unsatisfying while you exhaust yourself trying to wring out of every opportunity and every experience and every relationship one more drop. James Hamilton says the theme of forsaking Yahweh is significant in Jeremiah, pointing as it does to the root issue of sin, not trusting, enjoying, and worshiping Yahweh, which is to say, not glorifying him. This is what it means to glorify God. And this is important for us to recognize because it's all over the Bible. You know, how do you glorify a fountain? You glorify a fountain by drinking from it. You honor a cook by enjoying a meal. You praise a lover by delighting in her. But drinking from a sewer instead of a fountain or spoiling your appetite on junk when someone's prepared you a meal or viewing digital images instead of pursuing intimacy with a real person, that is offensive. And Israel is saying to Yahweh, you're not enough for me. I don't trust you. I don't think that you're able to deliver me. I need the, the joy and the protection that's offered by the alliance of foreign nations in submitting to their gods. And this text treats that as incomprehensible. How could you think like that? But of course, we do it all the time with boring predictability. Eric, you can go ahead and come back up, man. The problem is not that we're searching after pleasure and thrill too much. The problem is that we care too little about our pleasure, true and lasting joy. We, we settle way too quickly. As C.S. Lewis put it, Long ago he said, we are far too easily pleased. Why do you sip from the cisterns, the stagnant cisterns of drunkenness and people's approval and pornography and a sickening stream of information and entertainment when just beyond the hill There awaits you the fountain of living waters. Why do that to yourself? Why why be so weak and so half-hearted in your pursuit of pleasure? Don't you care about your joy? The Lord certainly does. And he knows that the only thing that will satisfy you is him. And so he brings his appeal The most repeated verb in the book of Jeremiah is the verb return. It shows up over 100 times. This is mercy. He says in Jeremiah 3, verse 12, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and you've not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Come back to me and I will bring you all the way to paradise. I will ensure that you are taken right up to what's satisfying if you trust me. Put away the cisterns. Put away what doesn't satisfy. Break the idols and come again to your God. Let's stand together. The prophets diagnose what's wrong with God's people. And we'll look more next week at the promise of hope that they contain. But you know, the prophetic indictment is not designed 
merely to remind us of the forgiveness of God, although it does that. And it is a stunning forgiveness. It is amazing grace that has come to us. But these words aren't designed to just cause us to appreciate the fact that we, we serve a forgiving God as we depart from this room onward to serve our idols. This is designed to stir us to change. This is designed to make us restless, to make us feel again the thirst that we haven't tasted in so long. I wanna allow us to receive from this ministry because God still brings his voice to his people. Through this word, he still speaks. He still addresses conditions of heart. He still, by the spirit, he takes these messages and he personalizes them. He causes us to call to mind what really has captured our attention, what really has had our affections, what's made us combative as we've fought to serve these things. Maybe you could pinpoint current conflicts that you're involved in with friends and family and spouses and co-workers. co-workers. And if you, if you run the diagnostics on that, you look, okay, there it is. That's where I bow down to the idol of respect. That's where I was after comfort at all costs. Right there, that's where I wanted to be served. That's where I was chasing empty thrills. The Lord wants us to call these things to mind. He's calling us to the soul-renewing experience of repentance. For some of us, it's been too long since we've consciously repented. We've acknowledged before God and taken a step of faith to to recognize, God, you've, you've not been first in my life. And there are just evident categories that come to mind where that's true. We're running after more in our lives than we realize. And perhaps this morning, God is wanting you to identify how he has been displaced by other things. And so, through this word, God comes again to us and he says, faithless people I've loved, return. Don't you remember I've been good to you? Don't you remember how sweet my love is? Don't you remember the redemption and the rescue that I brought into your life? Don't you remember how I won you and how I convinced you that I am after your good? Why? Why have you been so easily deceived? Why have you chased after so many things that never deliver? So as we sing this morning, I I believe the Lord wants to allow some time and some space just for us to do an act of repentance. And and for some of us, you know, we we can all identify sin in our lives, but for, for some of us, there have been idols that have come to dominate us. And the Lord wants you to take a hammer to those idols. He wants you to bring your heart before him and say, God, it's yours. It was purchased long ago. I pledged my faithfulness to you long ago. Have me, have my worship, have my love. So as Eric sings, just wanna invite you to to come forward and just find a place here where you can visit with the Lord, where you can receive his ministry and care as he leads you to repent and as he calls you to walk forward in faith. So let's, let's come forward and respond to the Lord. Do 
Father, thank you that you shine into our night, that your voice, your word is a blazing light in dark places. And Lord, we, we need the clarity of your light. We wander in a dim and confusing world that so easily captures us, Lord, as Hebrews says, the sin that so easily entangles us. It doesn't take much effort. Drift happens so naturally. Lord, faithfulness does not happen by accident, but drift does seemingly so. So God, thank you for moments like this, moments of clarity, moments really of sanity where we remember your value and your worth and we recognize the poverty and counterfeit of every alternative pursuit. Thank you for the grace of repentance. God, thank you that you revive us. Thank you how you desire to refresh our souls and trust you have this morning. We are a forgetful people, God. Cause us to remember Send forth your promises and your presence with us, Lord. We live in a dangerous world, and we need your nearness. Lord, thank you for speaking to us today. We go forward in your blessing and under your care. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Am